Thank you for listening to this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, Brent Harris explains his work on display in Versus Rodan, Bodies Across Space and Time. This exhibition is showing until the 2nd of July, 2017. It's really a, an incredible pleasure and a privilege to be able to welcome Brent Harris to town and also to be able to show these works, um, a selection from a, quite a vast body of works called The Fall. Um, and these are held in the collection here. And the process of making them and the way that they each of the imagery arrived on each of the plates and in each of the prints is um, is an extraordinary story of sort of um, well, accidents and catching and surrendering images. And um, Brent Harris is going to talk us um, through uh, or speak to the works. Um, Brent has, um, an, you know, originally from New Zealand, but um, has been based in Melbourne for many, many years, and uh, is a prolific printmaker as well as um, a prolific painter. Um, has an incredibly expansive practice, and both of those. Um, mediums really speak to each other in terms of how you make and continue making and how images recur and migrate across your different bodies of work. Um, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to, to Brent Harris. Thank you. Um, I feel as though I'm representing the, the printmaking side of the exhibition. Louise Bourgeois, Kiki Smith, Goya um, works on paper. I think I'm the only person speaking about works on paper. Yes, so there's no pressure. Um, <laughs> if you could, you know, no, talk look, about the whole history. Obviously, of they're smaller scale, and one of the great things I love about works on paper is you really have to get in. You know, you zero in on works like this. So, if you haven't had a look, maybe after the after this, you have a closer look at the work. The same with the Goyers. I mean, Goya couldn't stand here and talk to his prints over there without um, want, wanting you to take a closer look. Um, I'll explain the medium of these. They're monotypes, and um, in 2010, I was in Boston and saw a large exhibition of Degas um, with paintings, prints, and there was a large component of monotypes in that show, which has inspired me. Then when I got back to Melbourne to think maybe I'd have a go at it, I had a press in my studio, and um, so I started. So the technique, it's called the dark field technique, and it's it's worked on a piece of perspex which is exactly this size. It's completely rolled up black with ink. And so, you know, the terror of the painter is spoken of, you know, you're sitting there watching, looking at this blank white um, rectangle ready to start work. With these, it's just this black ink, completely, completely blank. And I don't start with any notion of what's going to happen on this. I just start smudging away with a, a rubber glove on, and a piece of cloth around my finger. Generally, that's how these things start. Um, they all, they're printed in the same day because the ink will dry on the, um, on the plate if not printed you know, quite quickly. So um, you could say that I'm access accessing my um, subconscious by just waiting for, waiting for the imagery to come to the surface. And before this developed, I, through my, um, my shrink, He's introduced me to a couple of other psychologists who um, well, he was very fond of. One of these persons was called... Um, Kurt Wolf. That's the, he's the um, reassembled self. He's the, he's the reassembled self. The other one, Catch and Surrender. 
Yes. Is hang on. You just told me. Kurt Wolf. Kurt Wolf. Both both German, but ended up in um, America. So when I got back from um, sorry from Boston, I started this work and I started thinking about these guys. So Kurt Wolf's idea was. Um, it's a rap built around the idea of surrender and catch, and it's some way that we deal with life. You have to surrender to your next opportunity, and all of all of us artists do. You know, you surrender to to the next, to inspiration, to you know your imagination, and it's very very present in the way that these works are found. So I have to surrender to the imagery as it's coming to the surface, and just wait for like. When I started this, I was not thinking there's going to be a large body of heads. That you know, there's no notion at all when I approach these works. But I've tried over a hundred monotypes that I made from this series. Um, I've grouped them in series of sevens, but they're not um, at all sequential in their making. The work at the very end was the first print that I made, and it sort of leads this narrative from almost this crowd that's being pushed forward into perhaps a deluge. And then this is, I think, a death scene. This is figure lying down the bottom here. Um, so this, these heads were forming on the side of this plate without this figure at the bottom to start off with. And they're staring into this dark void. And I'm thinking, where are they going? What are they looking at? And then there's a smudge down the bottom here. And it um, presented this dead figure. And then, um, so this kind of, once these things start to become obvious, I will print them. Um, there's a work in, there's a, a head in here that actually for me was the point when I decided to print this, this monotype. And it's sort of like the a head of Christ with the crown of thorns. And it's just when you recognise something in them, because they can often, at the end of the day, you'll just have to wipe the whole thing down and you have no, no product. Um, you know, there's no, nothing come to the surface. So they're built through this, through this narrative. They, it's called The Fall and basically it's, it's it's trying to make sense in a visual way for me and a search for you know, the meaning of life, if you like. It's kind of absurdity of life. It's so short. And you know, um, I think they basically deal with death. I've just finished working on a new series called The Other Side. Um, these could even have been titled The Other Side. Um, there's another, the other psychologist I was talking about was um, Hans Kohut. You could look him up. It's, um, he had this idea of, it's, it's a self-psychology, but he had this idea of we are continually assembling ourselves. So I made a body of work called the reassembled self, whereas we're continually putting ourselves together psychologically, emotionally, trying to hold ourselves together, and we never actually kind of make a whole. So this kind of psychological um, ideas feed into my work as well, besides just kind of accessing the, um, the unconscious. Um, often the imagery that appears in here um, feeds into other works. One of the prints here, the, the one towards the end, has fed into a new, a new maybe, um, that's going to be as hard to see as the print. It's not, it's not <laughs> this and, is just and that's a, not normally how I handle work on paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know. So this is one of these prints here, the monotype. And when you make them, these are totally unique. There's only one of these um, that comes off the plate. Um, so I have taken, this is not, I've made a print of this which is about twice the size of this. So I've taken the image from um, the second to last print up here and I inverted it on the computer. So 
in this in the in the monotype here, the tree is actually a white, um, just a white back end of a um, paintbrush dragged into the ink. Here, it's been inverted, so the tree actually becomes a dark form. And in inverting it, these areas which were dark in the print have opened up to all this other kind of strange figuration. Um, so this has then been put on onto computer. These figures. Um, the areas that they exist in that have been stripped out. Is this, it's probably hard to describe. It's then put onto a photogravure plate, and then these figures have been screen printed on top of this um, image. So it started as a monotype here in 2012, and in 2016 it's, it's emerged as another printmaking form here. So the, the subjects, the surface and the monotypes actually feed across quite a few different, you know, they, they feed into my paintings and um, across the whole thing. Um, we were talking before about there are a hundred in this series and I was, when I was looking at these thinking, rethinking them, I just realised there's nothing erotic in them, you know, and if you're thinking you're accessing your subconscious, there is going to be, you know, the erotic will arrive. It certainly didn't in these. I don't, I've made several series of works that are really quite sexually driven. Um, so I found that quite, I just dawned on me and then I thought, well, there's not a lot of eroticism in this whole exhibition, really, you know, it's not, it's not, se it's not so sexy, you know, there are no, there are very few genitals, you know, and I, it just dawned on me by looking at my own work and realising that, you know, there was no eroticism in these, it's kind of strange, they, you know, it's more about mortality here, yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just going to blame Rodan for that. I don't <laughs> well, the drawing, his works on paper are the closest we get to. But no, but it is, it is, um, it is really, it is really interesting because there, you know, there, there are um, um, extraordinary bodies. There's a, there is, um, you know, there is a lot of nudity and there's quite a lot of suggestive. Um, uh, actions that are going on, whether that's through the figure of Balzac or with Iris, Messenger of the Gods, or with the flying figure, which are full of a sort of potent sexuality. Mm. But, um, but uh, you know, it was really interesting when you were saying that in a hundred monotypes there wasn't there wasn't anything more, you know, erotic or sexually charged, yeah. or that spoke of your sexual self, or however that yeah. appeared in in this series. Um, and um, it made me think of the um, the the selection of works from that began as watercolours and were turned into lithographs to illustrate um, a novel called The Torture Garden, which was written by Octave Mirbeau and illustrated by um, Auguste Rodin, which are in the um, erotic or not so erotic gallery round <laughs> in the um, the back Sorry, the no. back gallery, um, and it's probably just a side of my prudishness as well. Um, and um, and it's a very explicit story about um, you know the sexual arousal of watching um, uh, of watching torture, and, and it tells out the story of 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 uh, of, of, of a couple. And um, there's very few, but yet um, in illustrating that incredibly graphic story, um, Rodin made the decision to not explicitly represent those moments of, of torture or, um, and, and instead there are these washes of, of colours or sort of su suggestions, only one a sort of suggestion of blood, the rest are sort of figures intertwining and, um, and so it's, it's interesting that actually 
if you don't read up about what the story of the torture garden is, you would think it might be another novel which is being illustrated. Anyway, I don't know how that relates to, to what is hidden and what isn't revealed or how that happens in the sort of, you know, printmaking or psychological printmaking condition that you've created um, for yourself as a means of finding things and allowing things to, you well, know, Well, Louise Bourgeois' work can be very sexual at times. I mean, again, these aren't. And in fact, I'm, I met Louise Bourgeois in 1989. I was taken to her house for a drink by uh, James Mollison, actually. He was, he was in New York at the same time. He said, I'm going to Louise Bourgeois' house. Do you want to come along? And I said, sure. So off we went. And we were there for about an hour. And just talking about how artists generate their imagery, like Louise's work has, can be very libidinally driven at times, you know. But, Obviously not here, and then it's quite psychological. And here she's got this one here, which says, "I pick on everyone, dead or alive." And through this hour of conversation and bottle of wine, Louise went off on this tangent of like anger and sort of like venom. And she let um, Louise Nevelson—I don't know if you know her work—and I think she was dead by 89. But Louise really gave her a slap, and she said, "She didn't say bitch, but she said, oh, she got into the bloody.'" Um, she got into the history books and she was charms with all the abstract expressionists and, you know, and she said they totally ignored me and she got really worked up and I thought, wow, you know, because she was in her 70s then and I thought this is part of her, the energy that she uses to generate some of her work, not necessarily, well, this one here, in fact, she spells it out for us. Then we sort of moved, the conversation just moved along nicely and... Um, then she got stuck into Cy Twombly, who was a friend of hers. And she said, bloody Cy Twombly, she said, I caught him in my, in my recent exhibition making notes and making drawings. She said, stealing my ideas and, you know, like... And not humorously, but she was real... The venom was like, you know... And then the, she drifted off, but, you know, and then we... She wasn't... I wasn't saying she's drifting in and out of, you know... She was very cogent, and... Um, but just... She'd, her mind would go on to this and she'd catch on to it and she'd, you know, spit out this venom. It was pretty curious. So it's nice seeing... I also own five of Louise Bourgeois' works, prints, at home, or my partner and I do, and we also own five Kiki Smith prints, um, who is around the corner. Um, I haven't met Kiki Smith. Um, but we did look at these prints to buy. When we've been travelling in New York, we had a budget of, like, $3,000 to buy prints, so... And at the time, Louise Bourgeois, you could still buy really good representations of her prints for around this price. And then she slowly crept up. And then we moved to, to Kiki Smith and, and then a mortgage. So that's the printmaking. <laughs> that was the printmaking purchasing gone. Anyway, um, so I'm very happy to be beside these two um, artists whose work, you know, inspires me. I, when this imagery appears, I'm saying I just smudge away, you know, um, I'm now 60, and my head is totally stuffed full of imagery, you know, travelling, books, all of that. And people say, oh, they look a little bit like Goya. So, but I'm not sitting at, my, at the thing with a book of Goya open here going, oh, I'm thinking about Goya. But all of, our, all of us, all artists, your head slowly accumulate all these imagery from, you know, from all these different sources. And being able to let it just come out, this is a great technique. Um, have you used it again since? Yes, I've made a couple of series, mm. and um, I've actually used some of the imagery in a recent body. Imagery that surfaced in the monotypes have, has migrated over into paintings, yeah. and um, will in the future too. So. 
Oh, wow, that's fantastic. I want to know all the rest, all your other stories. <laughs> we could sit here all day and talk about, you know, killing your heroes or, um, or reviving them through the monotype. Um, but, um, oh, God, just listen to you for hours. Um, is, does it, I think we've got a couple of minutes, though, um, just to continue to um, ask a few more questions of Brent. Um, does anyone have um, any questions in particular? Lisa Slade in the back. Yeah. And so I love that kind of tension between the idea of reproduction and its refusal to the monotype. Probably the other side I think works quite so beautifully is actually the uh, yeah. Degas has no sense of identity painting and yet monotype is kind of called it. So it's yes. Yes. Uh, so do you want to can you just talk to that contradiction that kind of idea? Well there are two techniques. This is the dark field technique where you start with a completely black surface and um, Degas did use this technique and he would then often take a second impression, which is very pale. You, uh, uh, the, the remaining ink from the first impression is often pale. He would then work over the, those prints, the second impression, with pastel. So a lot of the smaller works on pastel of Degas are actually over monotypes. And it's really interesting. This, this show in Boston had quite a few examples of this. And, um, the National Gallery in Canberra have a very beautiful example of pastel over a second impression monotype. Um, the other technique is simply painting on to, just with a paintbrush, just simply painting on. And um, Degas' brothel scenes, that Picasso seems to have bought most of them, um, they were done in that technique, so oil paint. And then, but he would still work some of those up with pastel into the future as well. Um, Yes. Well, that's sort of happening in the in this printing technique that I'm I'm using the monotype as a start off and then developing it. But it, recently, I've been working in pastel over the top of um, yeah. Um, pretty much black and white. I've been using uh, white chalk. There are a couple of coloured colourful ones, but um, yeah. Um, mm. So sort of using the monotype as a monotype as a. Um, create, you know, sort of starting point that were a trace or something then that builds up the imagery. And Often it is a search for the imagery. That's when I go to it when I'm feeling a bit dry and you think, okay, we'll just see what, you know, what you can bring up to the surface. And thankfully it does. Which also, you know, seems to me like quite a surreal process as well of whether that's automatic drawing and yeah. I can't help think of the processes of Max Ernst which whilst they weren't always um, related to printmaking, the sort of decalcomania, the sort of covering um, uh, the canvas with, uh, with, a, with a quite a liquid paint and pressing a pane of glass against it, pulling it away and then seeing what you found, found in that and then building up a, a, an image or an, a narrative around that. Mm. But um, I think Julie Robinson had a question. Yes. No. Just, just generally, just the one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, quite often, a, a default system that I find myself having to—I'm saying surrender and catch, surrendering—but often it's quite a ghoulish and absurd imagery comes to the surface, and it really sometimes irritates me. There are two here that have that, and the 
fifth one along actually looks like the dance sequence and reminded me of them pulling their hair and you know and it does become quite absurd and there's a group of figures in here that when you look into their faces they're kind of mad you know like and it it kind of drives me when I see them it can, not frightens me but you know I sort of think well, this is getting a bit crazy and absurd and I remember it comes I remember in Poland I was in Warsaw and I saw this absurdist theatre and it was just crazy and they were just going on and on and you started to build up this kind of you know, like the panic within yourself, just from the, the, the absurd, and the dancers here, there's something, there's an element of that in that dance, but if you, it's kind of repeated and driven more psychologically even than in the dance. It, uh, you know, so often, the, and I do find that the subconscious heads in that direction, for me anyway, in that direction, so I have to pull back from it. And, you know, I destroyed quite a few of those sorts of images. What I wanted to just one last thing I just wanted to ask and draw attention to before we um, um, before we finish up is you mentioned the very first image in uh, uh, that that you made with um, with the, the series 100 monotypes in the fall um, is uh, it's totally blank it's no, totally blank. blank it's nearly blank there are streaks there are you know. Um, uh, but um, but it, it you know it, it almost looks like a you know dawn or twilight or there is there is a sort of landscape element but mm. the fact that the process is called a dark field is also really interesting mm. um, just uh, just as a sort of um, well, the touchstone. Narrative, the narrative I read of this is you know sort of like from the deluge toward oblivion if you like you know that there's maybe possible light on that horizon but the human existence has kind of disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's end on that note. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. That was incredible. Brilliant.